Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, what's the right size for NATO? Russia demands no new members. Will that actually drive new applications? NATO's door remains open and we highlight that this is a Finnish and a Swedish decision. Putin says NATO's reneged on an important pledge. Not an inch to the east. That was the NATO guarantee in 1990. We'll fact-check that and NATO's denial. And how one soldier went from defusing bombs in Afghanistan to advising movie directors how it really happens. Bomb disposal is boring. Uh, I'm not. I'm not even joking. And you know, there's only there's only so much of a technical advisor that a, a director will take before he then says, "Get it," but we're doing this anyway. Four days of high-stakes diplomacy involving America, Russia, Europe and NATO have shown little sign of de-escalating fears that Russia might invade Ukraine. The differences seem irreconcilable. Russia demands NATO closes its doors, not just to Ukraine, but pretty much any new joiners. It claims the alliance pledged more than 30 years ago not to expand. NATO says that's nonsense and its door must stay open to all. There are signs Russia's demands might backfire. We'll look at those in a moment. But first, let's test Moscow's claim NATO has reneged on its promise. James Hurst has been checking the facts. So first thing to say, this is not a new claim by Russia. It's one that has been made repeatedly for many years, most recently in Vladimir Putin's annual end-of-year news conference. We said not an inch to the east. That was the NATO guarantee in 1990. Now, there are official Russian and American documents from 1990 of a face-to-face meeting that do record that the then American Secretary of State, James Baker, told then-Soviet President Gorbachev, and I quote, there would be no extension of NATO's jurisdiction for forces of NATO one inch to the east. So what became of that? They fooled us. No, we didn't, says NATO. This is what the Alliance writes on a myth-busting page of its website. NATO allies take decisions by consensus and these are recorded. There is no record of any such decision taken by NATO. And that's because that one inch to the east comment didn't come from NATO. It came from America's top diplomat. Personal assurances from individual leaders cannot replace Alliance consensus and do not constitute formal NATO agreement. In other words, it was said, but not by NATO itself. And it's worth looking at the broader context here because Moscow has made its own commitments in black and white, firstly in 1975 and then reaffirmed in 1997 in the NATO-Russia Founding Act. And that pledges for both sides that they will respect sovereignty, independence and territorial integrity of all states and this is the important bit their inherent right to choose the means to ensure their own security so yes Mikhail Gorbachev was told not one inch to the east in 1990 but 15 years before that and again seven years later both sides pledged in writing to respect states inherent rights to choose the means of their own security Well, Russia and NATO held talks yesterday and Moscow's demands that the alliance doesn't admit any more countries took centre stage. But NATO's giving absolutely no ground on this. This is what NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg had to say after the talks. 
on membership and on NATO's open door, all allies are united on the core principle that each and every nation has the right to choose its own path. And, um, uh, and therefore also allies totally agree that uh, it is uh, only Ukraine and 30 allies that can decide when Ukraine is ready to become a NATO member. No one else has anything to say. And of course, Russia doesn't have a veto on uh, whether uh, Ukraine can become uh, a NATO uh, member. Allies are ready to support Ukraine uh, on its path towards membership, helping to implement reforms, modernize their armed forces to meet NATO standards. And then, at the end of the day, it has to be NATO allies and Ukraine uh, that decides uh, on membership. Well, let's bring back BFBS reporter James Hurst. James, in 2008, NATO told Ukraine and Georgia, both former Soviet states, they would become members of NATO in future. So why aren't they in NATO already? So first thing to bear in mind is that was uh, very much an open-ended, deliberately open-ended commitment. It never set a date. Uh, There are always criteria to be met for membership, political, economic and military criteria. These were set out by NATO in 1995. So you've got to meet those and then you get sort of a membership action plan when you're close to meeting those. Now, neither of those countries is even at the point of having a membership action plan. There are some who feel that NATO has deliberately dragged its feet, effectively to, to avoid enraging Russia. So while the public commitment remains there, I think both Georgia and Ukraine would have to do significant development work to actually get on a, on a formal track to joining NATO yet. All right, James, stay with us. Well, it's not just former communist states which might join NATO and which Russia wants to keep out. All of a sudden, Finland and Sweden, which have been staunchly non-aligned for decades, are talking seriously about the possibility of turning their friendly ties with NATO into full-on membership. It's no coincidence Britain's Defence Secretary visited both countries this week. Sweden's parliament recently voted for the first time to formally put the option of joining NATO at some point onto the table. Swedish Liberal MEP Karen Karlsbro told SITREP, while it doesn't change anything yet, it's a dramatic political shift for her country. I've been, uh, all my life, told that we have been neutral and uh, a good guy and it will, would harm our aims and, and ambitions to get closer to uh, NATO, for example. But I think nowadays my generation believe, don't believe in that any longer. Time changes and it's really on the top of the agenda and uh, the threats are very serious because we are not member of NATO, we have but we have the majority for a so-called NATO option and practically we are so close to NATO cooperating sharing information training together with uh, NATO troops etc so uh, and, and that's a decision for for Sweden it's not a decision for anyone else In Finland, which sits between Sweden and Russia, the President and Prime Minister have been vocally defending their country's right to future NATO membership, if it so chooses. Henna Vikunen, a Finnish member of the European People's Party in the European Parliament, says momentum towards joining is growing. 
Of course, it means that the majority of the political parties and members in the parliament should support the idea of uh, applying uh, NATO membership, and that is not the case yet. But during the last weeks, there has been very active discussion on this, and also uh, members of different political parties has been supporting the idea to join NATO. So I think things are now moving slowly towards NATO membership. Is this just about Russia? Does it come down to whether or not Ukraine is invaded? Of course, the main, main reason is the aggressive policy of, of Russia. And in the same time, when Finnish politicians are very willing to deepen the defense uh, cooperation in European Union, they also understand that European Union can't replace NATO. And if we want to make sure that uh, our security policy is strong in Finland, we should also join NATO. And I think there's more and more members in the, Europe, uh, in the parliament in Finland who, who understand the situation, that it would be good for the security of Finland to join NATO also. And yet the Finnish public aren't convinced. A poll at the end of last year said only a quarter would support joining NATO. Half are definitely opposed. What is it they don't like about the idea? I think it's those historical reasons, of course, for that, because we have very big neighbour, Russia, and uh, most of the Finns think that it's better if we are not members, full members in NATO. But uh, in the same time, I think the public opinion is uh, slightly turning more positive also, because uh, the people, they see that how, how the security challenges changing in Europe. So how likely do you think it is that Finland will join NATO this year? I'm not sure that it will happen so, so fast. But anyway, I think it's very positive uh, that more and more members in the Finnish parliament are speaking positively about this possibility. So I think and I hope that in the next months there will be active discussion and debate on this topic in the Finnish parliament also. Back in Sweden, the Prime Minister yesterday held talks with opposition leaders about possible NATO membership. Karen Carlsbro again. Personally, I think we should have applied for a membership long time ago, but that's not the majority in the, in the parliament. I think that can change fastly because what we see now is a threatful Russia. We see how Putin is acting in his neighbourhood. I would say that we should separate Russia from Putin's regime. The people of Russia is, is absolutely no threat of Sweden or any, anyone else. But the regime uh, in Kreml uh, express very uh, dangerous threats to Sweden, to uh, Finland, to Ukraine, to uh, all other countries in Europe, and in, in a more explicit way than ever. There has always on, only been one enemy for military enemy or potential threat to, to, to Sweden's sovereignty, and, and, and that's Russia. James Hurst, uh, bigger isn't always better. Sweden and Finland wouldn't add much more military punch to NATO. So is it really in NATO's interests for them to join, or are they more useful as a, as a buffer? Yeah, it's, it's about the, the, the different diplomatic and strategic interests here. I mean, you know, effectively, NATO already has access to Finnish and Swedish military capabilities. Finland has been a contributor to NATO-led operations in the Balkans, Afghanistan and Iraq. Sweden has also contributed in Afghanistan, Iraq and in K4 in Kosovo. But so, you know, militarily, 
doesn't really make much difference to NATO membership or just close ties. The key diplomatic strategic issue here, as far as NATO is concerned, is self-determination, is about showing that they are not an exclusive club. I think some would prefer it if Sweden and Finland chose not to join so that it doesn't poke the Russian bear. But ultimately, it's in NATO's interest that if they do want to join and they meet the criteria that they're allowed. And one other of the, the important points that you made there, that, that public support is one of the key criteria. And I think that also ties in with what we were talking about with Georgia and Ukraine earlier. Mm. And James, on the question of Ukraine in this week's talks, have they achieved anything? There's been nothing substantive coming from them. No side has seems to have given any ground. But the achievement is that they have, you know, continued to talk, that the door is open and has been left open to more talks. That is at least positive. And that buys time. And remember last week, Mark Galliotti was telling you that there is certainly an ideal military window for Russia were it to want to invade Ukraine. That's a, that's a military window that's open now while the ground is frozen. And, mm. uh, and that ideal window might close in the near future. All right, James Hurst, thank you. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. It's almost two years since we first heard the word covid And then we probably had no idea just how much it would change our lives. The pandemic's aftershocks have hit hard and continue to do so. For Forces Charities, it's meant big drops in income and a surge in demand from people needing support. Copsio, which acts as an umbrella group for service charities, has recently appointed a new chair, retired Lieutenant General Sir Nicholas Pope, former Deputy Chief of the General Staff. And he joins us now. Uh, good to speak to you. You've just started the job this month. I guess you're having to hit the ground running. How badly are service charities still being hit by the knock-on effects of the pandemic? Okay, good morning. And, and yes, it's, um, it's an interesting introduction or a baptism of fire to the, to the job in many respects. Um, it would be fair to say that the entire charity sector, uh, not just service charities, has been hit hard by COVID. And that's unsurprising. I mean, it's a massive charity sector, 170,000 charities registered in England and Wales. And the service charity sector is about 1% of that. So yes, it's been hit, but at the same time, we've been surprised in many respects that charities have been resilient and have managed to adapt to the changing circumstance and still therefore support the demand that um, those veterans in need place upon it. Indeed, and figures last spring showed big increases in demand for mental health support, and that meant more than half of your members were finding it difficult to meet those demands. And that was before the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan. How much has that increased the pressure on charities? So it's fair to say that both COVID... um, uh, normal pattern of life and the effect of Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan have all had an, in, uh, an, an impact on the mental health of both veterans and broader members of society. Um, so yes, the demand has risen, but actually we run uh, a cluster within COBSIO called the Contact Group, which brings together those charities that provide mental health support. And that, that sector works very, very much Uh, hand in step with the National Health Service to provide um, the outcomes that our uh, veterans in need um, uh, are deserving of. So have they been well provided for? I'd say they have been well provided for. It's a complex area. And of course, there are going to be those veterans who who fall between the cracks. But 
but certainly it's not for want of trying. It's certainly not for want of having an organisational structure, which I think is configured well to meet the needs of those patients or those veterans. As funding dried up or got cut at the start of the pandemic, we heard warnings from some forces charities that they might have to close altogether. You say some have adapted, but have some been forced to close? Um, I think the evidence is, is remarkably few, if any, that I know about who have had to close those door, their doors. Certainly at the start, where those charities um, relied on an income stream from uh, you know, donations uh, from activities, those were the charities that were most hard hit. And I think a lot of trustees had to really, with their chief executives, decide how to reshape their demand to hit their, you know, change financial, central financial circumstances. A lot of charities, however, were, were able to uh, draw down on reserves to really, you know, provide services over and above the income stream that was coming in in the short term, in the hope that we could recover in the medium to long term. It's two years since you left the army. What's the transition been like for you? It's an interesting time to leave. I left about two months before the first lockdown. So um, in hindsight, you could have argued that wasn't a great time to go. But actually, um, it it allowed me to reflect on what I wanted to do um, in the next uh, part of my life. Because you don't retire, you transition. And it's important, therefore, to think about what you need to do and what you want to do rather than necessarily going straight into a job. So, you know, coming into the, the chair of the Cobzio role fits in, fits neatly into my desire, really, to put something back into society. I've always been altruistic and this kind of sort of matches that desire. And now you've moved to the other side of the fence, as it were. Do you think the balance between government and charity support for veterans and indeed serving personnel is right? Or is charity being asked to fill the gaps? It's an interesting question, this. And you could argue it's a more broad question across the entire charity sector. Um, You know, our country's got a fantastic charity record. I think the I think the stats are that every a mature adult in the UK gives on average £25 a month to charity. And that's a phenomenal amount of money. And part of you could argue that that should be a government responsibility. Uh, part of you, though, could argue that actually this balance between what the government does and what society does is a, is a, is a neat trick to try and balance. So our job as a sector really is to, in many respects, gently hold government to account we're looking really to identify those points of demand, those points of need that need to be fulfilled. And we'll engage with government really to ensure that government shapes its policy best to support um, charities and, and then actually funds appropriately. And, you know, government makes the aspiration that uh, it wants uh, United Kingdom to be the best place for a veteran to live. And that's an entirely laudable aspiration. And it's our job really as a charitable sector and as a government to, to, to work in lockstep to ensure that that happens. Lieutenant General Sir Nicholas Pope, thank you very much for your time. Kate, thank you very, very much. Now, Hollywood would have us believe it's all down to deciding whether to cut the red or the blue wire. 
But how do you really defuse a bomb and how do you do it in the blistering heat of the Afghan desert while firefights erupt around you? And what can a bomb disposal operator do when they move to Civvy Street? Well, Kim Hughes disarmed nearly 120 devices on three tours of duty in Helmand province and was awarded the George Cross, one of the highest honours for gallantry. He left the army just over a year ago at the rank of Warrant Officer Class 1 and he shared his story in a memoir called Painting the Sand. When we were looking at the book, we were kind of banding around funky titles and what would be, you know, catching titles. And I actually just was looking at pictures of what I was doing in Afghanistan. And the one picture was me lay on my belt buckle with a paintbrush in my hand. And that's exactly what we do when we uncover devices in that kind of environment. We utilise a paintbrush. And that's essentially where it came from. Wow. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. So you see this is almost certainly a homemade bomb, an IED. How do you go about making it safe exactly? Every bomb is different, whether it is a victim-operated device or a time device which is designed to initiate a predetermined time. It really depends on what you're dealing with at that moment in time. In, in Afghanistan, predominantly victim-operated devices to target ground troops. And essentially, we'd be called out to a device that has been found. Um, so it was my job to kind of look around the area, look at the device itself, utilise the paintbrush, metal detectors and, and an array of tools that I had in my, my kit and, and essentially render that device safe. Each device you get is different. Do you always feel confident you can actually diffuse them? Yeah, I mean, we're trained in such a way to be able to look at a situation, look at a device and, and essentially think outside of the box. The actual bomb disposal part, the physical doing of, of bomb disposal is relatively easy. And I, I say this a lot to people. It's not actually that difficult at all. The, the difficulty comes in understanding the bigger picture, understanding the threat assessment, understanding why the device is there in the first place. And if you don't get that, you'll probably get one device under your belt and then that'll be it because you don't understand the bigger picture. You say that um, diffusing a bomb is actually quite straightforward. What do you actually do? What is the process? Essentially, the device is broken down into component parts. You have to have the explosive content, you, which is the main charge. You have to have the detonator, and essentially that gives the explosive that energetic kick to go bang. Uh, you then have to have a power source, otherwise nothing is going to work. If we're talking about an electrical-initiated device, which predominantly they were when we were operating in Afghanistan, and then some form of switch. Now, the best way to do it is to remove that power source to if you take the power away nothing's going to happen so we're looking for that power source or we're looking for the circuit and we're looking to break that circuit and what goes through your mind when you're doing it um you know what it's it's funny because it's not like you see in the movies where um you know there's sweat pouring oh obviously there is sweat because you're in you're certainly in afghanistan it's quite warm but you know there's your heart rate's not going crazy and you're not shaking and none of that kind of stuff you're just thinking about the job in in hand and you're thinking about you know the next step once you've achieved what you're doing on target then but in the back of your mind you've also got certainly in a high tempo environment the, the wider mission you need to think about so it's it's very fast moving very flowing environment Yes, the wider mission. Uh, what happens then if a firefight breaks out nearby? Instinct must say to you, jump to safety. But then there's the risk of other IEDs that could, could be set off by you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you've got to have trust in your team and the, the guys and girls around you. You know, there were situations when I was on the ground and situations where my colleagues were on the ground where essentially all hell broke loose around them. And you're there to do your job. You are, you are a small cog in the big wheel. So if you don't crack on and do what you're doing, then nothing else will be able to progress. And, and sometimes, you know, you are the furthest man forward or furthest girl forward if it does 
kick off around you you've essentially you've got to get into as low down position as you can and crack on doing what you're doing and have have trust um in the people around you to solve that problem have you ever sort of been there and thought i'm going to have to abandon this i can't do it and had to walk away not really i mean the only the only time i've ever had to kind of come away from a device is when the the situation uh, the bigger picture has changed, whether that is, you know, the enemy were moving into the area. Uh, you know, I talk about it, certainly in, in my book, I had to withdraw from an area because a Danish main battle tank wanted to shoot around over the top of my head into a compound because there was a lot of enemy activity. And obviously they weren't going to do that whilst I was laying on the ground in front of them. So I had to withdraw from that. But it's very frustrating to a bomb disposal operator if he or she has been told, right, stop what you're doing. We need to now leave because you're almost, it's almost like half a job's been done. And then, you know, that kind of situation, if time allows for it, then if you're unable to remove that device from the ground and render it safe, then what we would do is call a blow in place, do a controlled explosion of that device, and then subsequently it would be destroyed rather than rendered safe and recovered. Bomb disposal is a very specialist set of skills. What do you do now, now that you've left the army? So I'm very fortunate that I still kind of have my hand in this kind of environment. You know, I'm a technical consultant for the Foreign Office. Um, so I do a lot of business for that office and I do a lot of travel on their behalf. I also am my own consultant and through my own company. So I do a lot of training, corporate work. You know, the training bit surrounds the bomb disposal and capability development. But in the mm. corporate environment, it's about leadership, team building. It's been really amazing since I left the Army, but I haven't stopped. You'd think, given that your training, that um, you are very capable of being focused when under pressure. Does that translate into all areas of life? You know, it does, because you, you learn, uh, it's a bit crazy, you learn that, you know, everything is relative in everything that we do. Um, stressful situations that others might find, you know, too much to deal with, I kind of look at it differently. Um, and I'd be able to just to, just to get on with it because I, I always reflect and think it's not as bad as some of the things I've been in and not as bad as some of the things I've done previously. So, and this isn't going to kill me. So let's just get on with it. Um, and it, it, it's very easy to look at life like that. Um, mm. And it, I, find, I find it works for me. Does that mean you don't get stressed? Not really, no. <laughs> which is, which is a just so lucky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you write as well, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I was very fortunate um, that following my autobiography, my um, publishers approached me and asked if I would um, kind of dip my foot into, into fiction. And, um, and subsequently, following that, I've uh, written two novels. Funnily enough, uh, uh, it's based around a UK bomb disposal guy who goes and does some crazy stuff, works a lot with the um, security services. It's very different. Uh, and I've learned that you know, if you're writing nonfiction, for example, you're trying to ex describe a room you're in, you know, you talk about the intricacies of that room, the, the smell, the touch, the way it feels, the heat. Whereas fiction, you're not talking about the room, you're talking about moving through the room and getting to the other side. It's a lot quicker. And I had to kind of get my head around that. When you see things like the Hurt Locker, um, it certainly makes an impact on the public and, and gives them a very definite impression about what your job is was like um how do you respond to people i mean did you watch the film how do you respond when people come up to you and it's all in awe i presume about what you used to do i mean the the, the hurt locker um when it comes down to the the intricate detail of bomb disposal it's horrendous uh, it's not like it's not, how we, it's not how we do business at all um but 
doing some of the, the stuff I've done since on TV movie sets and, and, and whatnot, it's the entertainment factor. It has to be because bomb disposal is boring. Uh, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> even joking. When you do it, it's exciting, but to stand at the back and watch it, it's like watching paint dry. Um, mm. So the Hurt Locker, for example, it, it takes elements of bomb disposal in a high-risk, high-tempo environment and just pumps it up a lot and puts it into a movie. And it has to, you have to do that because otherwise it's just, it's just relentlessly boring. So from an entertainment perspective, yeah, it's great. But, you know, for anyone that is a subject matter expert in whatever and they see a movie about it, you can guarantee they're screaming at the TV half the time. So you've been on movie sets yourself. What do you do exactly? Um, so I've, I've advised on a, a couple of things in my subject matter um, previously, but I've kind of stopped it there because there is potential in, in the near future that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to branch out in, into TV and do kind of my own thing. It's really interesting because you said that um, you have to accept that when you're making uh, entertainment, that there has to be a certain level of kind of creative license when you're showing the work of bomb disposal experts. Do you feel that, uh, can you accept uh, letting a bit of that in, in the future? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you have to. Um, and, you know, there's only, there's only so much of a technical advisor that a, a director will take before he then says, get it but we're doing this anyway. Um, and you've kind of got to just agree with it and say, okay, that, that's cool. But um, to be in a position where you are being approached to, to work and do stuff on, on screen, you know, it's such, such a, an outstanding thing to be asked and, and, and to these guys to work with, you've kind of got to accept that sort of creativeness. That was Kim Hughes on his journey from bomb disposal operator to TV, film and books. His memoir is called Painting the Sand. His thrillers are Operation Certain Death and Operation Black Key. You can hear much more from Kim on an extra edition of the BFBS SITREP podcast, including why he didn't wear a blast suit while defusing bombs in Afghanistan and what the Queen had to say when she awarded him the George Cross. That's online now at bfbs.com SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. My thanks to all of our guests. We're back next week. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>